following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Hey, it's a, um, it's a real joy to be here with you. I feel like I know this church really well because of the the partnership and the friendship that Reuben and I have. Um, as he said, he and I and a few other pastors in Auckland meet pretty much each, each month just to hang out and talk and share about what's going on. But I feel a real affinity with this church uh, more than any of the others because all of the other churches, the other three, I think, churches or four that are represented, they all have their own flash buildings. Whereas us and you fellas get this. You know, so there's this affinity, I think, between our churches in particular, because we do sit up and pack down and freeze in, you know, school gyms and all that kind of stuff. But it's really neat to be here. I'm, I'm really grateful. We're actually stealing Reuben from you in a couple of weeks. He's coming out to Botany Life as well. We're just trying to establish the sense of, of partnership together, that we're not in this journey alone, but actually there's some, there's some other churches very similar to each other, and our hope is that perhaps over time, there's just the sense of partnership and affinity um, comes uh, between us. It's really cool to be here, though. This morning, I want to ask you um, a question, and I don't mean for it to sound rude, although it may. I'm not meaning for that. I'm, I'm wanting to ask you to think, what are you doing here? Really, I mean, <laughs> what are you doing here? It's freezing, for one thing. You're in a school gym. You're sitting in rows, listening to what is effectively a lecture, for want of a better word. You have just spent some time standing on your feet and singing. In New Zealand, Kiwis singing together. Do you know how countercultural you are being <laughs> in this hour or, or more? We don't do that in New Zealand, do we? I mean, we do it at a rugby game or a netball test or something, and we sing the national anthem, sure. But apart from that, I mean, when else do we do it? I mean, some of you ladies may go along to one of those sing-along, you know, Mamma Mia or Sound of Music where you sing along. I hope none of you guys do that. <laughs> but apart from that, we don't sing as a culture. You know, it's not like not, not English football matches that you may turn on. I do with our boys. Our boys are avid sportsmen and they all play football. And you turn on an FA Cup final in the middle of the night and watch it and the crowds are singing. Not here. You know, you try singing in an all-black match, you'll, you'll get pummeled. We don't do that in our culture. And yet you here have chosen to come this morning to sit in a cold gymnasium to listen to some guy you don't know speak for a few minutes and to sing. <laughs> you, you, you're just a little weird. Or Irish. <laughs> <laughs> or Irish, which is weird anyway, isn't it? <laughs> I, I wonder if we understand just how different we're being. And I, wanna, I, wanna, I do want to ask you to stop and think for a minute about why. Why do you do this? I mean, we're following the footsteps of generations of Christians. We've been doing this for centuries in different ways. 
And in fact, we've, we're following in the footsteps of many Jewish followers of Yahweh who have been doing this in their synagogues before the time of Christ too. But I want us to stop and think this morning a little more deeply on, on the why question. Why are we doing this? And that's where Psalm 33 comes in. The Psalms is the hymn book of the Jewish people uh, and the Israelite nation. And today, if you've got a Bible, whether it's a paper one or it's a, an electronic version on your, on your phone or your iPad or whatever, I'd really love it if you could open up to Psalm 33. Because I want to walk through the Psalm together and answer this question of, of why. Why is it that we do this week by week, Sunday morning by Sunday morning, gather here and sit in really what is not a great facility, but we do it because we're commanded to do it, as we're going to see. Psalm 33 is a praise psalm. There are two main categories of psalms in the, in the Old Testament. There's a few minor ones as well, but there's two main sorts of psalms. There are praise psalms, which this is one, Psalm 33, and there are lament psalms. Lament psalms is actually the biggest category, surprisingly. They're the psalms we don't normally read during corporate worship. They're the psalms of weeping. They're the psalms of tears. They're the psalms that you should go to when life is painful and the journey's really hard. And I love the fact that God has inspired through his spirit psalms, songs of tears that give voice to the emotions we often feel when the journey is really tough. I love the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired songs that question where God is. My favorite psalm is a lament psalm, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? Are you going to forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I mean, it almost sounds blasphemous to question God like that. But it's an inspired song, a song of tears. That's the lament psalms. The other category of which Psalm 33 is part is the praise psalms. These are the psalms we read generally as part of our corporate worship. These are the psalms, not of tears, these are the psalms of joy. These are the songs of laughter, where God's people come together and they sing. And primarily what we sing about, what the praise psalms focus on is God. Who God is and what God has done for his people. That's the praise psalms. And Psalm 33 that, that we're looking at this morning is one of these. I think it's one of the most magnificent of the praise psalms. It's an invitation for us to come, as we have done and are doing this morning, and praise Him. Praise Psalms have three main parts to them. The first part is a call to worship, a call to praise. Every praise Psalms begins that same way. Different words, but that same essence. It's an invitation to come and praise. And that's how Psalm 33 begins, if you've got it open there. Psalm 33, verse 1. It's going to be on the screen, too, if you... Don't have a Bible with you. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. I want you to notice a few things about this call to worship, this opening to this psalm. First of all, notice how many command words there are. Virtually every line of this psalm has an imperative, has a command, and they're plural. They're to all of us. 
Sing joyfully. Praise the Lord. Make music to Him. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully. Shout for joy. Six times we are commanded to sing, to praise, to make music to God. And it's the psalmist calling on all of the people of God. These are plural verbs. This is not the psalmist, as it were, standing down there, looking up at all the people on the stage, saying, come on, sing, praise, play skillfully. The psalmist is standing here, talking to the people of God and saying, sing, praise him, make music. This is an incredibly important thing, incredibly obvious, but massively important for us to grasp in our culture today. One of the things we talk about as pastors when we get together is how much of our consumer culture is creeping into the church today. It is very, very easy for us to sit in these chairs and watch the people up on the stage as though this is the performance and we are the audience and we sit here and we analyze. Gee, I'm I'm not entirely happy with the way Graham played those keys today. The drummer was a little loud, wasn't he? And it's so easy for us to sit there and watch what happens here And it's a performance for us to judge as to whether or not they've done a good job and we're the ultimate consumers because if we don't like it, well, we'll just go somewhere else. And it's a mentality that is creeping into churches right around the Western world. And it's a mentality that the psalmist of Psalm 33 knows nothing about because the psalmist is standing here looking out to the people of God and saying, you are not the audience. He's the audience. We are all the performers. So it's not a matter of us looking at the professionals and saying, you sing, you play skillfully. We want them to play skillfully, absolutely. But this is a call to all of us. We are commanded, these are commands, we are commanded by God to lift our voices and sing, to praise Him, to celebrate who He is in response to who he is and what he has done. Now, the response I get whenever I talk about anything like this is always there's a whole chunk of people who go, but I can't sing. You know? I can just tell from the facial expression of half the men in the audience right now. That's where you're at. Oh, well, I can't. You know know what? The psalmist doesn't say, sing joyfully to the Lord, you people who can sing in tune. It is fitting for the musical ones among you to praise him. That's not actually what God says. Because the beauty of this is that God doesn't actually give a hoot whether you can sing in tune or not. He's delighted when you lift your voice to him. Which means, by the way, that if the person next to you doesn't like it, tell them to lump off to the other side of the auditorium. Because this is an invitation to each and every one of us, whether or not we are musical, whether or not we are gifted, whether or not we can hold a tune. The people of God have always been a praising people. A people who lift their voices together and sing. 
That's part of the answer of what we are doing as we gather here today. We come to praise him. Why? Because we're commanded to. And not just in Psalm 33, but psalm after psalm after psalm and copious other parts of Scripture, Old and New Testament, invite us to come together and praise and sing. I love what Louis Giglio writes. You may recognize his name. He's launched the Passion Student Conference and now pastors a church in Atlanta. He wrote in a book on worship. Worship isn't something that you attend, like a movie or a concert. Worship is something you enter into with all your might. Worship is a participation sport in a spectator culture. I love that. See, we're not an audience when we come to church on a Sunday. We are not coming to to watch a performance. We are coming to be led in a performance as we perform for the audience of one. We go back to the psalm, or we've just come back down to the next slide with those words, opening words, this call to worship in Psalm 33. I want you to notice something else about this, not only this whole list of commands here, but I want you to notice the two who people involved here. One is the Lord. And you notice both verse 1 and verse 2, there, the word Lord is in capital letters. That's the way in our English Bibles we translate the name of God. His name is Yahweh. Older generations use Jehovah, but scholars think Yahweh is probably the closest pronunciation we can get. This is God's name. And his name is scattered right through the Old Testament scriptures. Every time you see the word Lord in capital letters, that's his name, Yahweh. When the Bible wants to emphasize, the Old Testament wants to emphasize the greatness and the power of God, it uses his title, God, Elohim. God created the heavens and the earth. But when it wants to emphasize relationship and intimacy, it uses the name of God, Yahweh. The invitation here is to the covenant people of God who are in relationship with him. Come to Yahweh, your God, and sing. And the ones who are invited in verse 1 is the righteous, you upright. We don't know how the Psalms finally got arranged the way they have been. There's 150 of them in our English Bible. And we have no idea who pulled them all together and made this collection come together. But what's interesting is whoever put it together put this Psalm right after the previous one, Psalm 32. The final verse of Psalm 32 reads like this. Rejoice in Yahweh, rejoice in the Lord, and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. The words of the final verse of Psalm 32 are virtually identical to the opening words of the very next Psalm, Psalm 33. It's the righteous, it's the upright, and this command to sing. Psalm 32 is a psalm of forgiveness, celebrating the forgiveness we find in God. Listen to a couple of the verses. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, rejoice in Yahweh and be glad, you righteous. That's Psalm 32. 
It's what we've celebrated this morning as we've taken communion together. The elements of of bread and juice that point to the body and blood of Christ who died for us so that we could be forgiven. And the way that the Psalter has been arranged is that it's almost as though having celebrated this forgiveness of God in Psalm 32, now the psalmist invites us to respond to that in Psalm 33. Let's praise him. It's the, it's the psalm of those who have been forgiven who are now called to come and sing. Let's praise him. Let's lift our voices and celebrate the one who forgives so graciously and generously through what his son accomplished for us on the cross. I love how one scholar describes this call. Alan Ross says, It is appropriate for believers to praise, for they have received everything by God's grace. A believer without praise is like a person who is not properly dressed for the occasion. I grew up in church, so this doesn't feel weird to me. I grew up doing this. And I remember in the little church that we grew up in, in Napier, getting up every Sunday morning and getting appropriately dressed by my parents. It was the 70s, so they were polyester pants with some ugly floral shirt. Why? Because we had to be dressed nicely for church. I'm very thankful those days are gone. I'm very thankful that whereas once I wasn't allowed to wear jeans to church, now I'm a pastor and I just wear jeans to church. But I like what Alan Ross says, that a person without praise, a believer without praise, is like a person not properly dressed for the occasion. God doesn't care what clothes you've got on your body, although the rest of us are thankful you're not naked. But God doesn't care what clothes you've put on this morning as much as he cares about what your heart is clothed in as you come. We are to come clothed, dressed with praise, ready with a heart to sing out to this God who has done so much for us in forgiving us, in restoring us, in pouring out his spirit on us, in giving us hope and a reason to live. And I want to build a big idea from this psalm this morning. I want to start it this way. Let's clothe ourselves with exuberant praise. That's what the psalmist is calling for in Psalm 33. That the people of God would clothe themselves with praise. That as we come to a cold gym on a cold morning in the middle of winter on the north shore of Auckland, New Zealand, that we would come clothed with praise, ready to give him thanks for what he's done. Exuberant praise. A few years ago, We were having dinner with some non-Christian friends that we've been building a relationship with. They're parents whose kids went to the same primary school as ours. And uh, their two boys are a similar age to the youngest of our three. And we were having dinner and I was talking um, with them about a school assembly that had just happened a couple of weeks before. Their youngest of their two sons has got some quite significant mental handicaps And uh, he's got a special carer who looks after him through class session and everything else. But he's this delightful little boy. And I was talking about the school assembly that I'd gone along to because our youngest son was getting a principal's award, so you turn up for those. So this Friday morning assemblies happened, and I got to the, 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 the school hall, and the two rows of seats at the back for the parents were all full. 
And there's a few seats at the school hall my kids went to, the primary school. There were a few seats along the sides where the teachers could sit to be nice and near all their students to, you know, keep a beady eye on the kids and keep them in line. And there was a spare seat next to one of the teachers, so I just snuck along and sat along the sidewall. And I was sitting right in front of this wonderful little boy. And uh, the school assembly starts, and as most school assemblies do, the very first item on the agenda is the national anthem. So everyone stands, and you sing the national anthem. I love singing the national anthem. So I'm belting out in Maori and English, New Zealand national anthem. And then I look down, and this little boy is sitting. He's got a special little chair that he brings um, to help try and keep him occupied and comfortable during assembly. He's sitting on his little chair while all the other kids are standing, and he is not singing. He's looking straight up at me. It's like he's actually never actually heard a guy, because it's almost all female teachers, he's never heard a guy singing the national anthem. And he's just sitting there looking at me like this. And I kind of wink at him, because, you know, we know him. Wink at him and stuff, and he just smiles at me. So I start singing it louder. We're still in the Maori verse at this point. And I start singing a bit louder. And he starts to giggle. So I'm singing louder again. And he starts to really start to rock in his chair and laugh. And the more I sing, the more he laughs. And the more he laughs, the louder I sing. And we go like this through the whole assembly, through the whole, sorry, the whole anthem at the start of this assembly. Well, it's a couple of weeks later and we're sitting at the, the parents' place and I'm telling them about this. And the more he's giggling, the more I sing until the end of that anthem, I, I'm talking to his parents, I said, and I was just singing lustfully. Did you hear what I just said? Because we all paused for a minute. That's not the right word, is it? <laughs> what I meant to say was I was singing lustily. What came out was lustfully. (laughs) And they were delighted with the fact that the only pastor they know sings lustfully. (laughs) This is an invitation to sing lustily. Not lustfully, not looking along the aisle at someone else or looking at the front at Reuben but to sing lustily. This is an invitation to sing to God, to give him exuberant praise and to clothe ourselves with praise, to make it part of who we are as we come Sunday by Sunday by Sunday as the people of God. Let's clothe ourselves in exuberant praise. Why? Why should we do that? Well, that's what the body of the psalm goes into. The first three verses is the call to worship, the introduction to the psalm. The main part of the psalm, the body of the psalm, gives us the reason why we should praise. This is how most praise psalms work. And in this particular psalm, it focuses on three key attributes of God. Why we should praise Him, why we should clothe ourselves with exuberant praise. The first reason is found in verses 4 and 5. For the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. 
You just take a moment and look at some of those words that describe the character and the word and the person of God. He is faithful. He is righteous. He is true. He is just. He is loving. The first reason we are to praise him, the first reason we are to come as his people with exuberant praise is because he is a faithful God. He's faithful in who he is. That is his character. That is his being. I preached this particular psalm a couple of years ago in our church, and the week I preached it, we went as a family and watched um, a movie that had just come out in the box office, Saving Mr. Banks. Some of you may have seen it. It's the story of how Walt Disney um, put the, the um, what's the movie? Mary Poppins. It's the Mary Poppins story. And how they took the, the book of Mary Poppins and turned it into the movie they made. And it's this conflict that goes on through the movie between Walt Disney on one hand and P.L. Travers, the lady who wrote the story. And what you find as the story unfolds is that the whole story of Mary Poppins actually isn't about Mary Poppins at all. It's about the father of this family, Mr. Banks. And the character of Mr. Banks is based on the author's own father. It's a terribly sad movie because he's an alcoholic. And while he is a lot of fun, and while his daughter absolutely loves her father, he is utterly unfaithful. He makes promises and he breaks them. He has a job, but he can't hold it down. He makes commitments and he never follows through. He's loving and fun one minute and he explodes with anger the next. And I remember sitting in this movie, watching it with our kids, and having these words of Psalm 33 echoing in my brain about the faithfulness of God. Because the truth of the matter is, we're a lot more like Mr. Banks. We don't have to be alcoholics to be unfaithful or inconsistent because we all mess things up. We all fail to follow through. We can all play the hypocrite, but not God. He is altogether faithful. What he promises, he does. What he says is always true. He is the one being in this universe we can count on. And the psalmist is coming and says, we are to clothe ourselves in exuberant praise because he is worthy as our faithful God. Second reason is found in the next couple of verses. Verses 6 through to 11. Verses 6 and 7 say, By the word of Yahweh the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. We're not only to praise Yahweh because he is faithful, we are to praise Yahweh because he is great. He is the powerful God. Verse 6 is a very obvious reference to the creation. And the psalmists will often sing about the fact that we serve a God who is so powerful, he simply spoke the words and the entire cosmos came into being. Talk about power. 
And the psalmist, time and time again, call us to praise him because he is worthy because of his greatness and his power. Many scholars believe verse 7 is also a reference to the creation. But there are some who have offered a different viewpoint, which I really like. In my Bible, I use an an NIV 2011. There's a footnote on verse 7. There's an alternative translation to that first line. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. At the bottom of my Bible, there's a footnote that says it could read, he gathers the waters of the sea into a heap. And there are some scholars in the last few years who have suggested that actually verse 7 is not a reference to creation. Verse 7 is a reference to salvation because it's very similar wording to another song, the very first song recorded in the Bible from the book that you will be familiar with as a church, Exodus chapter 15. It's the song of salvation that you, I think, have just done in the last couple of weeks. At the the Exodus through the Red Sea, where God opens up the Red Sea. He piles the waters into a heap to allow Israel to escape and then to quash the Egyptian army in the deep. It's the same wording from Moses' song in Exodus 15. Can we go to the next slide? This is Exodus 15. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. This is what Moses and Miriam are singing in the Exodus story on the far side of the Red Sea. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. It's the same words as Psalm 33. And it's as though the psalmist here is celebrating the power of God, not only in creating everything that was from nothing in verse 6, but in celebrating the greatest moment of salvation that the Israelite people knew at this point, which was the Exodus. We, of course, know an even greater act of salvation, which is what we've enacted again today in communion, which is the cross of Christ. But this, for them, was the great moment. And that is why the psalmist will go on in the next couple of verses. Verse 8. Let all the earth fear Yahweh, the God of Israel. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Verse 10, the Lord, Yahweh, foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. See, if this is only about creation, those verses don't quite make sense. But if this is not only a celebration of God's power at creation, but also a celebration of his power at the Exodus, then these words make perfect sense. Because they are a reminder to all peoples that Yahweh is the one true God. And that actually they too are invited to come and become part of his people and join the chorus of praise. We are to clothe ourselves with exuberant praise because he's faithful and who he is and because he's great and powerful in what he does. Third reason is in verses 12 to 19, the third great stanza of the psalm. I'm just going to read some of the verses here, starting in verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people he chose for his inheritance. 
From heaven, Yahweh looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. Down to verse 18. The eyes of Yahweh are on those who fear him. On those whose hope is in his unfailing love. To deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. The third reason that we are to praise Yahweh, praise God, to be clothed in praise, not only because he's faithful and he's great and powerful, but because he's good. He is a good God. And he is good to those he loves. Notice here in verse 18, in the second line of this verse, The eyes of Yahweh are on those who fear him, those whose hope is in his unfailing love. You would be surprised how often that phrase, it's unfailing love in the NIV, other translations render it other ways. One of my professors at seminary when I got to study in the States said that that phrase, that word, is the most important attribute of God in the Old Testament. It is the Hebrew word, Chesed. So it's Chesed, but it's got a ch in the front of it. You've got to get a hoik in the back of your throat. It's awesome. Chesed. Chesed is his unfailing love, his never-ending love, his loyal love, his covenant love, his steadfast love. Whatever English translation you use, this is the dominant attribute of God through the Old Testament. It's describing the love of God for his people for the ones he is in covenant with. And what this this, uh, part of the psalm is saying is that Yahweh is the God who knows everything. He searches the hearts of all people. He knows exactly what's going on in the lives of every person. But he especially has his eye on those he loves, on his people. They're the ones he knows best. That's what Psalm 139 celebrates, isn't it? doesn't matter where I go, when I go in or out, whatever, whatever parts of the world, I go to the ends of the earth, he still sees me. And that's not meant to be an oppressive thought that, oh my goodness, I can never get away from him. That is meant to be a loving thought. Oh my goodness, I can never get away from him. He loves us that much. He is the God of chesed, the God who never lets us go. When the translators of the Old Testament, a few hundred years before Jesus, when they translate this into the Greek language that the New Testament will be written, they take this word chesed, and they translate it with the Greek word charis, which we translate grace. This is the gracious, unfailing, ever-loving God who never lets go of his people that's what the psalmist is writing about so this this psalmist and we don't know who it is this is an anonymous song this songwriter comes and he's almost pleading with God's people would you come and praise him would you play skillfully would you shout for joy would you sing a new song would you clothe yourselves with exuberant praise Why? Because he's faithful. Go to the next slide. He is faithful in who he is. He is great in what he does. 
and he is good to those he loves. Three outstanding reasons why we had to praise him. So this big idea of the psalm is that because God is worthy, we are to clothe ourselves with exuberant praise. We are exhorted to come. We are commanded to come and sit in rows in a cold gym and sing our lungs out because he's worthy of it. He is faithful and he is great and he is good and he is worthy of every sound and every song that we can bring to him. That's the point of the psalm. This is how a praise psalm works. There's a call to praise. And then the body of the psalm gives us the reason or reasons why we are to praise him. And then a praise psalm ends, and there's three verses left. It concludes, but most of the time what a praise psalm will do, it will conclude with very similar words to the call at the front end. The conclusion normally mimics the introduction. Praise him, worship him, sing a new song. So let's praise him, let's sing a new song, let's worship. Not this psalm. Psalm 33 is very different. I think that's one of the reasons why I love it. Because the conclusion here is not simply another call to praise. It's a call to do something quite different. Have a look. Verses 20 to 22 as as the psalm ends. We wait in hope for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Yahweh. There's the chesed again. Even as we put our hope in you. This is a surprising ending. It starts with exuberant, loud, celebratory praise. And you expect it to end the same way, and it doesn't. It ends almost quietly. There's almost this reflective tone as we come to the end. And it's an invitation not to praise him exuberantly, but to trust him wholeheartedly. A couple of reasons for that as we finish. One reason that I think is here, implied in these lines, is I think the context of the psalm is in hardship. I don't think the psalm was actually written on a hilltop in a moment of triumph and victory. I think this psalm ends with a call to trust in God because I actually wonder if the context of this is difficulty and hardship. It's an invitation to God's people to hang in there and trust Him. And it's a reminder that we can praise him as we're called and commanded to do at the very beginning, even when life isn't actually going right at the end. It's a reminder that even when life is tough and things aren't working out the way we think, he's still worthy of our praise because he's still faithful and he's still great and he's still good. Even when life isn't going the way we thought it would. The other reason that I think the psalmist ends here is because it's far too easy 
to come to this kind of gathering and to sing songs and to smile nicely at each other and to shake hands afterwards and to put on a front of worship when our hearts aren't really in it. Last year, we preached through the book of Isaiah in our church, and Isaiah 29, 13 really hit me. These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. I think the other reason the psalmist ends the psalm this way is he's reminding us it is not enough to come clothed in exuberant praise in response to the worthiness of God. We also need to come with our whole lives. It's not enough to come and stand with God's people and sing on a Sunday. If Monday through Saturday, it makes no difference to our lives. It doesn't work to come and sing his praises now and then not trust him tomorrow. Rather, what God is looking for is a people who will come with the praise of their lips and with a heart that trusts him and follows him by faith. Because God is worthy. We just jump down to the end. One more. Because God is worthy. Let's clothe ourselves both with exuberant praise and with wholehearted trust. That's the core of the psalmist in Psalm 33, is that we would be a people, week by week, Sunday by Sunday, who because God is worthy, and that's where it begins, in his worthiness alone, we would come as his people in response to him, to who he is, we would come Sunday by Sunday, no matter the temperature, no matter the location, no matter the acoustics of the room or the comfort of the chair, we would come as his people, clothed, ready to honor him and sing to him and praise to him, no matter how good we are at it, simply because he is worthy. But that we would come and sing lustily and praise him exuberantly, and trust him, and live for him, and follow him wholeheartedly. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.